As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. So getting face-to-face really is an important part of the process. It gives you some leverage, but again, it allows you to build that rapport. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Hello, Best Ever listeners. This is the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Theo Hicks, and today we are going to be going over three more clips, this time focused on how to win any negotiation. All three guests featured today have written best-selling books on how to improve your negotiation skills in real estate investing. The first guest we'll be featuring is Chris Voss, who not only wrote a book about negotiating, but was a FBI hostage negotiator for 24 years. And here is what he had to say about winning any negotiation. Tactical empathy, is it primarily knowing what emotional triggers, what make people feel good? It's learning how to say no without saying no. Like the book starts out with, in the first five pages, it was when I first went up to Harvard Law School. I sit down with the head of the program on negotiation, Bob Mnookin. And I know what he's angling for because I can smell it. He wants to do a role play with me. He wants to see if I got any game. (laughs) So he says, if you negotiate with a kidnapper, what kind of strategies you use? So I give him an answer that makes me sound weak and innocuous. And I say, you know, we just ask him open-ended questions, that's all. And he goes, really? He kind of laughs. <laughs> he says, that's it. I say, yeah, we're going to ask him open-ended questions. Now, I got some ridiculously powerful open-ended questions. <laughs> but he doesn't know that because it sounds like something that's stupid and simple. And he's not impressed with it. Pretty much happens wherever I'm in a new environment. They go, you got to be kidding me. That would never work. Fine. So he literally calls a couple of people in to watch. And he gets a tape recorder. So he looks at me and he says, all right, you know, boss, we got your kid. Give me a million dollars. By tomorrow morning, we kill your son. I got your son. I'm going to kill your son. Give me a million dollars. And I look at him and I say, how am I supposed to do that? Just like that. And he kind of blinks a couple of times. And he goes, no, no, we got your kid. You don't understand. We got a million dollars. I'm going to kill your son. Now, already I'm listening. He doesn't know it. Because his initial intention was to make a demand and get off the phone. Yeah. I've already extended the conversation. He feels in charge. 
the secret to gaining the upper hand in, in any negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control, which is a point of that question that I just asked. It triggered something that Daniel Kahneman calls deep thinking, which slows him down, doesn't make him feel threatened, but he doesn't know that I've already boxed him in. And then I say, how do I know my son's alive? How am I supposed to agree to pay if I don't even know he's alive? How am I supposed to pay if I don't know you're going to let him go? How do I know you're going to let him go? Just one after another after another. This goes on for a little while until finally one of the people watching says, don't let him do that to you. <laughs> and he looks at her and he says, will you try it? And she says, I got your kid, million dollars tomorrow morning. I said, how am I supposed to do that? We start over again. How am I supposed to do that is the number one way to say no in negotiations. You got to say it deferentially because what's said with deference, you'd be amazed what you can get away with saying. And the other side feels in control. They don't know you boxed them in. Hmm. Since we're real estate investors on the show, let's say we're talking about a deal and it's a house, it's worth $300,000, and the seller says, I want $400,000. And I say, well, how am I supposed to do that in a deferential, warm and fuzzy way? Then they'll say, well, you get your checkbook and you write out uh, $400,000. That's how you're supposed to do that. Oh, let's role play. Cool. You think you know what they're going to say? Let's role play. <laughs> All right. Who do you, which one do you want me to be? You'd be the seller. I'll be the seller. So the house is $400,000. All right. You know what? You've got an amazing house. You know, you put your hopes and dreams in that house. You get cherished memories there. Cherished memories of the past. Your hopes and dreams of the future. It's a beautiful house. It's worth every penny of that. It's probably worth more than that. I'm really embarrassed because, but how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> well, you... You write a check for $400,000, and that's the amount you pay. And it's worth it. I mean, it's a beautiful house, but how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> I would almost think you're a little loony because you keep repeating that. You just write a, you write a check, and that's it. I mean, I don't know. what. How were you planning on buying it in the first place if you weren't going to pay for it? Well, listen, how long do you want your house to stay on the market? Because no one can do that. I'd like to get it sold pretty quickly. Yeah. Do you want to fail? No, I don't want to fail. That's not an option. Your house is a fantastic house. And I know that and from your perspective, it's worth way more than what you're asking. But it's going to stay there as long as you're asking that price. How long do you want it to stay there and not sell? Well, I'd like to sell it pretty quickly. That's for sure. And I also would like the price that makes sense for me, which is the 400 Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, why me? Why, why you know, I mean, you, you don't have to, you don't even have to be in this conversation because I've already let you know that I can't do that and you're still talking to me. So it sounds like you got some sense that, Nobody's going to pay you that. Well, I don't know. I guess it's just something that I'm looking for. And if it's not a right fit for us, then I guess it's not a right fit. Yeah. You know what? And, and you've been enormously generous with your time. That enormously generous. I'm surprised that you've talked to me for this long at all. And, you know, what I'd like to do with your permission, I'd like, I'd like to have your permission to come back to you and talk if nobody else comes along. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds like a good next step. Right. Okay, so a couple cool. things here. Yeah. First of all, you and your holodeck. You know what the holodeck is? I have no idea. Star Trek, the holodeck is the room where in our imagination we create whatever we want to have happen. So there's a little bit difference between a conversation that you're imagining what might happen that you're right. not in the middle of yeah, yeah, and one that you're actually in the middle of. So I didn't make this how am I supposed to do that stuff up on a first spur of the moment. Actually, what would have happened if how you would have answered if, in fact, that you weren't going to take anything other than 400 grand instead of slowing down and saying it as slowly and gently as you would have, you would have said, you know what, because if you want the house, you'll pay it. Now, that's an actual indicator when people are telling the truth. Now, this is not a thousand percent correlation, but it's a real high correlation. You get a lot more direct. It's a great way when somebody's testifying in front of Congress, when a congressional witness is being accused of nonsense that they haven't committed, they look at congressmen and say, because congressmen, because that's the way it is. As an FBI agent, I learned directness and impatience correlate strongly with truth telling. Mm. So you were role playing a role that you weren't feeling. And that's why you didn't say it that way. You said, well, you know, because. Yep. I buy that for sure. You, you know, you're a little slower. So you, you're a little out of character in a role. Yeah. But let's get back. What happens if the other side says what you said only more directly? That's your job as a negotiator, actually to push you till you say, because if you want the house, you're going to pay $400,000. Because my job as a negotiator is not necessarily to make the deal. My job is to find out what the deal that's there that could be made and then decide if I want to make it, which in that case I didn't. But now the most important thing for me to do is the last impression is the lasting impression. Let's say that you're selling a house and the market says it's worth 300 and you want 400 and you're genuinely not going to budge off 400 which means your house ain't going to sell, which also means that eventually at some point in time, you got to be willing to go back to somebody. The last impression I left you with was nothing but with respect and deference. Mm -hmm. The last impression is the lasting impression. I actually intentionally seeded our next interaction by instead of using the last word to say like, look, pal, you're going to beg me to buy your house someday when you come to your senses. Yeah, right. Which is a mistake that a lot of people make in, in negotiations when they know the other side's crazy they make the worst possible impression at the end, which is like, all right, fine. You're going to be begging me to buy this someday. But instead of doing that, which is people say they're cheap shots for last, we actually call this the Oprah rule. Oprah's the toughest negotiator on the planet. Is that a reputation? No. I know someone who's worked as Oprah Winfrey's booker for 17 years. And everybody that works with Oprah, their overwhelming goal is everyone they interact with has to feel especially at the very end, like they were treated exceptionally well, no matter how it went. Mm. And the Oprah rule is the last impression is the last impression. It sets the scene for my next impression. Let's say you really are crazy. You're not coming off 400 grand. I know that house ain't going to sell because the market is not for 400 grand, but I do know that I'm going to get another crack at it. As long as I treat you with respect and deference and empathy throughout, you notice I used empathy every step oh, yeah. of the way before Absolutely. I said anything. Yeah. It was and soaked in empathy. Yeah. And so what that does is it sets me up for the next interaction, which when I come back around, your memory is going to be like, yeah, you know, that guy wasn't that bad last time. You know, he didn't give me what I wanted, but he treated me really respectfully. I don't like where I'm at, but 
since I don't like where I'm at, the only people I'm going to deal with are the people that made the least bad impression on me last time around. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. One of the hardest tasks to balance while scaling your real estate investing business is accounting. Well, realestateaccounting.co takes care of the numbers for you so you can grow your business and revenue. REA helps property managers and investors save time and money by automating back office, financial, admin, and accounting. Starting is quick and seamless, from accounts payable to reconciliations, taxes, and reporting. Go to realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever to find out how REA clients save on average 30% by leveraging their accounting services versus hiring in-house. With CPAs on staff and being owner-operators themselves, REA knows the challenges of your growing real estate business. Try it risk-free at realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever. And remember to mention the Best Ever Podcast sent you to receive up to $1,800 towards onboarding and services. That's realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever. If you're not sure where to start investing or need help taking the next step, mentorship and coaching is one of the best ways to get going. Think Multifamily is a leading apartment acquisition and education company who provides true one-on-one coaching to help you invest for your family's future. Their servant leadership approach will guide you to successfully scale your real estate business or assist you to diversify your investments in multifamily. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how they help working professionals just like you transform their future through partnering and community. In fact, the majority of real estate investors who partner with Think Multifamily get involved in a general partnership within six months. Thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching highlights the partnerships, joint ventures, and resources all available through the coaching program. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how to become a member and get involved. The takeaways I've gotten from this so far to summarize is have empathy and just soak the conversation with empathy, but also do it in a genuine way versus you're trying to apply it when it's not natural for you. Yeah. You know, and there wasn't anything that I said that wasn't utterly true. I know in the real estate industry, you're selling a house. Actually, a home seller has the exact same profile as the family member of a kidnap victim. And the real bread and butter of kidnap negotiations is how we handle the family members because we would have the family members deal with the bad guys. And what's a child represent to their parents? Their cherished memories of the past, their hopes and dreams for the future. What's a house represent to a seller? cherished memories of the past, hopes and dreams of the future. It's the same psychological profile. And that's what I said when we were talking. Empathy in a form of utter respect for how you actually feel about this. Not agreeing with any of it, but just recognizing it. That really empathy, it's cognitive empathy. It's a recognition. It's not adopting it, but it's just recognizing what you feel. It's not sympathy. And I know what that profile looks like, or I can pick it up really fast in any given industry because whatever anybody does in in any sort of business, their hopes and dreams for the future on the line at some point. All I got to do is listen for it and respect it. It gives me tremendous advantage. So if you want to learn more from Chris Voss about negotiating, check out his episode 1244, FBI Negotiating Strategies for REI Deals, Skill Set Sunday with Chris Voss. The second clip we're going to feature today comes from Jay Scott. 
J. Scott wrote a book on negotiating real estate called The Book on Negotiating Real Estate. Listen to what he had to say about how to win any negotiation. I think a lot of people, when they think about negotiation, they think about that part of the process where you're haggling over price, you're haggling over terms. One person's saying, hey, I'll give you this, and the other one's saying, well, how about that? But what a lot of people don't think about is there's a whole lot more that goes into negotiation before you get to that stage that determines is going to come out successful. And that's all the preparation, that's building rapport, that's really building trust. We talk about building rapport. What we're really talking about is building trust, basically building a relationship with another party so that they both trust you and like you. And frankly, they want to see you succeed. People want to see other people that they like succeed. Even if they're on the other side of the negotiating table from you, if somebody likes you, they're going to want to help you. So that's what building rapport does. It builds that level of trust and it builds that level of likability so that the person that you're competing against is actually also on your side. Okay. And I think everyone will agree with you on that. We want to be liked by the other party. So let's talk through the process that you recommend a best ever listener go through or certain things they should do to accomplish the goal of building rapport and trust. Certainly. So there are a lot of things. And anybody that's dealt in psychology and and persuasion techniques knows that there are a whole bunch of of techniques. And I'm not going to go into each of them, but they all basically revolve around the, the fact that other people want to be liked, they want to be accepted, they want to feel important. So I like to say, and this is true whether you're negotiating or whether you're going out on a date or whether you're going into a job interview, the best way to build rapport with somebody is to let them talk about themselves. People love to talk about themselves. I like to say if you go to a dinner party and you want to be the center of attention, all you have to do is ask a question and then say, that's really interesting. Tell me more. If you keep saying that over and over, you're going to find people just circling around you because everybody likes to talk about themselves. And if you give people the opportunity to talk about themselves, they're going to feel like you are doing them a favor and they're going to naturally congregate toward you and they're going to like you. So whether it's negotiating, whether it's going on a date, whether it's, again, going on a job interview, ask the other person questions. Let them talk about themselves because they're going to interpret that as something likable about you, if that makes sense. Okay. Is this part of the preparation work that happens prior to going back and forth on the purchase price and the terms? Well, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. There's the preparation even before you meet the other person. If you get a phone call from a potential seller who says, hey, I want to sell my property at 123 Main Street, and you ask some basic questions and you get some information, it sounds like it could potentially be a good deal. You say, great, I'll meet you there tomorrow at noon and I'll take a look and we can talk. What should you be doing between that moment and the next day when you actually meet the seller? There's a whole bunch of preparation that goes on there. And it starts at the highest level, which is what's the market like? Is it a buyer's market? Is it a seller's market? That will give you some indication of how much leverage you have in that negotiation. What's the inventory like? So that tells you how much competition you have. Is that seller likely calling 30 other investors? Or is that seller likely you're the only phone call they've made? And then investigating the neighborhood. So you go in everything from where is the house located? Is it on a busy street? Is it near an airport? Are there train tracks running behind it? And then even down to the house level. So 
drive by the house before you meet the seller. Does the neighbor have chickens living in the yard? Does the neighbor have loud barking dogs go in the middle of the night? So is there a lot of activity in the middle of the night? Are people out and about? Is there drug activity on the street? Stuff like that. That will give you the information you need so that when you go and start talking to the seller about actually buying the property, you know what you're buying, you know how much it's worth, and you also know what type of leverage you have over the seller. So for example, we once bought a property where there was a train running through the backyard and we were looking at Google Maps and we saw the train tracks and we did some investigation and what we found out is the train only runs basically the middle of the night, 3 a.m. every night past the back of that house. And if we wouldn't have done that investigation, we'd have no idea that there was a train that ran behind the house. Mm-hmm. Then when we went to talk to the seller, we were able to say, hey, we know there's a train that runs behind the house every night at 3 a.m. It's going to make it more difficult for us to sell the property after we fix it up. So how are you going to compensate us for that negative aspect of your house? So doing that type of research gave us some leverage to go to the seller and say, hey, we know there's something negative about the house. You're going to have to compensate us for that. You're going to have to give us some concession for that negative. And that type of research that allows you to have a a discussion with the seller that puts all the information on the table and allows you to get concessions and allows you to get compensation for the negatives. So you just talked about the actual opportunity, but then what about the person? How do you prepare for being liked, accepted, or having them like you, them feeling accepted and important so that you do build that rapport and they want you to succeed? There's a whole bunch of ways. A lot of people look at negotiation as it's all about business. And what I like to say is that it's not about business. It really is. It's personal. And business in itself is personal. The biggest reason somebody is going to do something nice for somebody else is because they have a personal relationship with that person. And whether that relationship is we've been friends since high school or we've worked together for the last 10 years Or they came into my house yesterday and we had a great conversation and they were really nice. If you have that relationship, people are going to want to do something in reciprocation. So it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be best friends for the last 20 years. Just sitting down at a kitchen table, having a cup of coffee, talking about kids, talking about where you went to school and where you worked and finding things that you have in common can go a long way towards building a basis for a relationship that will make the entire negotiation process a lot easier. In terms of specific tips, a few things that I like to say. One, there are a lot of investors who like to negotiate over the phone or over text message because it's easier. You don't have to have a hard conversation with the seller or with a buyer face-to-face. But in actuality, it's just as difficult for the other party. If you're going to throw out a lowball offer, it's really hard to do that face-to-face. But by the same token, if a seller gets a lowball offer face-to-face, it's hard for them to look you in the eye and say, absolutely not. It's easy for them to say that's ridiculous over text or over email or mm-hmm. even over the phone. But when you're face-to-face, it's hard for you to throw out a low offer, but it's also hard for the other person to reject that offer. So getting face-to-face really is an important part of the process. It gives you some leverage, but again, it allows you to build that rapport. If you're talking to somebody over the phone and you never see them, you're less likely to feel attached to them in some personal way than if you're sitting at their kitchen table or at a coffee table drinking a cup of coffee and and talking about family. 
so I talked a little bit about asking questions, talking about them. People like to talk about themselves. Doing little things for people. So you mentioned the book that we just released on negotiating, and I talk a lot about what are called concessions. So concessions are the whole pot filled with things that make up the deal. And you give some and you take some and you divvy up the concessions. And one thing you can do that really can help a negotiation is you make a concession up front. You give something. People have this innate need to reciprocate something that's been given to them. Here's a good example. Have you ever received in the mail a request for a donation from some company and they include like a little sheet of return yep. address labels or yep. even a nickel? I've started seeing they send just literally a nickel. <laughs> There's a reason they do that. They do that because they know you've now received something. You have this innate need to now reciprocate. And what they found is they can literally hand you money and it's going to be beneficial for them because they know that they're going to get something much bigger in return. That little idea of, I gave you a gift, now I expect something in return is huge. So if you want to build what's called capital with a buyer or seller, one great thing you can do is you can give a little concession. Buy them a cup of coffee. Meet them at a restaurant, pick up the check. Go to their house with a little gift. All of these things will basically not just ingratiate them to you, but also provide the sense of obligation back to you. So that's not something I invented. That's actually a well-known psychological product of persuasion. But it's very useful when working with buyers and sellers in the real estate world. So these little things, these little tips can add up and really tip the scales of leverage in your favor in the negotiation. So Jay's clip focused on three things. One, how to build rapport, a.k.a. trust how to prepare for a negotiation by finding leverage, and then also how to get the other party to like you. And he gave some tips about talking face-to-face, -face, as well as the law of reciprocity by giving up concessions up front. If you want to learn more from Jay on negotiating, check out his full episode, episode 1209, the interview on negotiating real estate, the Skill Set Sunday with Jay Scott. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Mark your calendars for the Best Ever Conference February 24th through 26th back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having a lot of fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. Get the lowest prices right now at besteverconference.com. That's besteverconference.com. The third and final clip comes from Oren Claff, who wrote the best-selling book, Pitch Anything. Here is what he had to say about negotiating. The quick review, obviously, on Pitch Anything was that information goes not from your mouth your neocortex, the smart, linguistic, capable part of your mind into the smart, linguistic, capable mind of the other person. We talked about that last time, right? It just goes into the crocodile brain of the other person. And that brain does not understand ROI, IRR, and fund development and real estate economics and rising interest rates or anything of like that. The crocodile brain only understands, hey, somebody's talking, somebody's moving. I see something happening. What should I do? Is this something I should eat? 
Is this something I should mate with? Is this something I should kill? So there's a huge disconnect in what you're trying to explain to someone and what they're actually hearing. And then the user's guide to power goes further beyond the fundamentals of pitch ending to think about how to communicate something to someone so they understand it, appreciate it, want it, and come over to your side and buy it. So Joe, what are you seeing out there? What are the number one problems that people are having today that you think they need to overcome? Communication, influence, pitching, that kind of thing. I would say with social media, it tends to be about me, 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 and not about the customer. So it tends to be a lot of beating the chest and not a lot of talking about what is most interesting to the recipients. Yeah. So we have a whole chapter on be compelling. And some of the things in that is really the word is context. So people come in and they say, Hey, I'd like to sell you this. I'd like you to invest in my real estate. I'd like to give you this six and a half percent current pay with a 20% IRR, or I'd like to provide you 12% hard money or anything like that. Is that the language of the people of your podcast? My, my head. Yeah, right that's there. language. You got it. Okay. So we got the lingua franca of real estate and finance, right? But the sense is how well do you really know the world of the buyer? So I like to think about how can you put what you're selling in context of their understanding? How do they appreciate that this isn't just a cold call, that this isn't just a package sale, that you're just not trying to move some product, you're not just looking for an investor? How do they know that you understand what they're looking for and that you really understand the topic. So Mm -hmm. when you provide context, then you're compelling to someone. Context is not, hey, I have a multifamily in infill Houston that's got a 4% current pay. We're going to improve it, get it up to a 8% current pay over three years, and then exit at a seven cap assumption for a 20% IRR. That's information, Mm -hmm. but it's not compelling. Okay. Compelling or context, or is that the same thing? It's the same thing. So when you can put things in context of what is happening today, where things are likely to go, where are the danger areas, where are the green fields, and why, and you can put that in context in a way that is impartial and doesn't totally 100% just support your position, the things you're selling, then that starts to become compelling. So will you go through an example for just to bring this full circle? Sure. In the last three years, you could buy multifamily in Wichita, in downtown Manhattan, on the Canadian border, at basically underwater, 300 feet off the coast of California. And you get a 6% current pay, a 12% ROI, and a 20% IRR. But if you look forward... What's the interest rates are going up. Sellers are slowing down the pace of selling. Inventory is increasing. It's no longer the case that every multifamily asset is going to do well. When we look at the country, here's what we see changing and where the red flag areas are and what is still green and what looks emerging that's super interesting. So we think that if you work a little harder and you focus on the areas where it's getting super interesting, even though they're not obvious, you can do really well. Do we have those? Maybe, sometimes, we'd like to get them, but I think it's first best to understand the best thing to go for, and then we can take a look at if we have it or not. 
So people find it compelling when you can step back and be that third-party impartial advisor or provide them information that is not 100% necessarily in your favor. Mm-hmm. So you tell them a story. Tell them a story. I think that's a bit of a simplification, but how are things changing? Who does that benefit? Who does that not benefit? And how do you get into the area of change that's better, safe, and growing? Mm-hmm. What's changing? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? Everybody finds that person compelling. Right? If you go to any Fortune 500 company, who's the most important person in the company? Eh, CEO, maybe. You know, lead designer, engineer, maybe. I think as sales manager, vice president of sales, probably, maybe. But if you drill down, it's the guy who knows what sales are going to be at the end of the quarter. The CEO, the COO, the CFO, VP of sales all want to hang around with that guy, right? (laughs) He's compelling to be around. And by the way, the guy who knows what sales are going to be accurately at the end of the first half or third quarter at the end of the year, that guy who knows what is going to happen most likely in the future and why is the most interesting, compelling, desirable, want to be hung around person in the entire company. Got it. That's helpful because as real estate investors, we're likely looking for partners. It just lends itself for partnering up and we want to be able to attract partners, whether we're fix and flippers or multifamily investors, storage units, whatever. So the components for having that compelling context would be what I wrote down when you were talking was how are things changing who will win, who will lose, and what will do. Did I capture that accurately? Yeah. So how are things changing right? What are the elements that are actually changing in a real way? Interpret those. So here's the facts. Here's the interpretation of the facts. And then project how that is going to affect people like the buyer. Think about a blood test or a genetic. Have you done one of these genetic tests at 23andMe or Pathway or something like that? I tried, but I didn't give it enough spit. The results were inconclusive. Okay. Well, let me get my little boy over to your house. He can spit like nine feet. (laughs) Like hit you in the side of the head with a (laughs) four-year-old thing of scuba spit. Anyway, enough of that. So I worked in one of those companies. Worked for them, helped them. I own stock in or equity in one of them. So when you get the genetic data, that's not what's actually valuable. It's the interpretation. What diseases are you likely to get? Of the diseases that you're likely to get, what would be the preventative courses of action? And if you do get that disease, what is most likely to be the treatment that work for you? That's what's valuable, not the genetic data. Yeah, because you're taking action on the data. So that is, to me, what is changing? Why is that change important? And then what should you do? Because I think what happens is when we see real estate proposals is here's what we have and this is what you should do, invest. And it's ignorant that route misses the whole step of what's changing, how well do you understand that change, and how well are you able to interpret what's happening in the world for me, the buyer, the investor. So I think if I could see guys doing that route more often, I think they'd be closing a lot more equity. Debt is another thing. Equity is a thing we all care about. And they'd be able to put their hands on a lot more equity if they could put it in context of change. So Orn focuses on how to be compelling during a negotiation, making sure that you are putting whatever you're selling in the context of not only the other person's understanding, 
but also in the context of what is happening today. So how are things changing today and then how that's going to impact the future. And that the number one tool for proper negotiation is your ability to not just focus on the facts and data, but to properly interpret those facts and data. So overall, the three tips that we got today, first from FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss, who talked about the power of tactical and cognitive empathy, as well as the last impression in a negotiation. Jay Scott, the author of the book on negotiating real estate, taught us how to build rapport, how to prepare for a negotiation, and how to get the other person to like you in a negotiation. And then lastly, Orrin Claff, the author of Pitch Anything, taught us how to pitch and influence our passive investors, business partners, buyers, and sellers by being compelling, which involves being able to interpret facts, data, what's happening today, and putting it in the context of the other person's understanding. So that concludes this episode with more than three tips because a couple of the guests, the clips, had more than one tip on how to win more negotiations. So make sure you check out those full episodes that I mentioned earlier. Thank you for tuning in today. Have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.